So my mum is Māori and she was adopted in, um, well, she was placed for adoption in 1948 and the adoption went through in 1950 and she was adopted into a Pākehā family. But her birth mother is Pākehā and her birth father is Māori. Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan and that is Dr Erica Newman. She's the Indigenous Development Programme Coordinator at Otago University and her research follows the journeys of Māori whose parents were adopted. People like her. I mean, she was about seven years old when she found out that she was adopted and that came through brutal honesty of her school friends. <laughs> um, you know what kids can be, like, can be like, they don't quite understand things. So question as to why she brown and why her parents are, are white. And she went home and she asked her mum and her mum said, well, it's because we adopted you and she just kind of accepted it. Uh, and it was probably more like after she had me um, and as she got older, she she always had a kind of questioning and wondering about her taha Māori, um, about understanding, you know, that side of her, her family and her identity. And especially since my mother is visually Māori as well, could often be seen as somebody who would know something about te ao Māori, but of course being raised te ao Pākehā, she didn't actually know anything. So as you can imagine, it could kind of make you feel a little bit standoffish and, and a bit, you know, I don't really want to go here mm. kind of conversations. But it was 1997 when um, she did ask for her um, adoption information through the Adult Adoption Information Act. And at that stage, she only got information about her Pākehā side, for, about her mother. It was told that there was a name for her father written in the records but they said that they couldn't release it because it was only one name so and they weren't sure if it was a first name or a surname and because it wasn't Māori they couldn't trace iwi or hapu and they wouldn't give us that name so we kept fighting and we kept trying to get the information we went through the ombudsman and all of those kinds of things just to try and and get it but because of the privacy laws in New Zealand that that information wasn't going to be given to us um, oh, I think it was 2016 that we finally did get that information and that would have been, my grandmother would have been 104 at the time. Aotearoa's laws around adoption were created back in 1955, nearly 70 years ago. And the world has changed a lot since then. Attitudes about adoption have changed a lot, in practice, the interpretation of the laws about who can adopt children has changed a lot. But the overarching legislation hasn't. It can still be very difficult for adopted children to find out information about their birth parents, about themselves. Tricky legal situations can crop up around inheritance and wills. And whāngai, often characterised as the Māori equivalent of adoption, which we'll hear about, still isn't officially recognised. But all that could be set to change. The Ministry of Justice has released a range of options to overhaul New Zealand's 67-year-old adoption law. Improving access to birth families, keeping children connected to their cultural heritage and supporting children to take part in the adoption process are among the changes open for public consultation. There have been calls to update the Act for decades and attempts to do so within Parliament have ultimately gone nowhere. 
This despite reviews by the Law Commission in 2000 recommending an overhaul and the Human Rights Tribunal finding in 2016 that seven provisions of the legislation were inconsistent with the Bill of Rights. Today on The Detail, the past, present and future of adoption law in New Zealand. Mark Hennehan is a professor of family law at the University of Auckland. I think the problem has been, and there's been lots of proposals, the Law Commission's done proposals to update the adoption law. It's just always fallen off the political agenda. And I, I think the reason is, like we're down to at the moment, last year I looked up, there's 125 adoptions. So people, politicians don't see it as an urgent issue. You know, if you're a politician, you want maximum votes. So mm-hmm. they see it as, well, the, the act seems to be working all right. A lot of it's been adapted to. And, and, and in fact, the law doesn't reflect what happens at all at the moment. So there's a big gap between practice. There's always a bit of a gap. This is a massive gap. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons why it just doesn't happen. Um, there was a human rights review that I was involved in in 2016 that came out very clearly and said it breaches the Human Rights Act and the Bill of Rights Act and should be overhauled. Politicians at the time, I think, uh, Amy Adams said, well, that's fine, but it, it seems to be working, so we'll just leave it at this stage. So mm. it's never really hit the, the agenda. I mean, surrogacy has, and there's some link there, although they're doing that separately, because there's a drive from people with means. Mm. <laughs> Adoption, often often people haven't got the means to, to fight the battle. There's been a small group of us for many years have been saying it should have been reformed a long time ago, but it always just gets the last hurdle and then falls off, falls off, falls off the agenda. Now, you have mentioned that... Our Adoption Act was passed in 1955. Yeah, I was one year old. It's your one year old. And, and, and while it's passed, I'm not past it, I'm, I'm, I'm 68, so yeah. I'm, I'm a year older than the Adoption Act. I still feel pretty well, much alive. Congratulations. Touch wood. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it, it is a long time. And it, I mean, it, it was the same year as the Marriage Act, 1955. The Marriage Act has been updated with um, recognising uh, same-sex marriages, but and that, that was pushed through. But the Adoption Act... It just sat in its original form. Um, it's a very brief legislation. One of the good things about this is it's very yeah, brief. In those days, acts were very brief. <laughs> <laughs> These days, they go on forever. But that was very brief. It's no RNA, that's the truth. <laughs> but, um, you know, 67 years ago, that is, that is quite some time ago, it respectfully. Is. Um, Especially with, with, with reform that affects everyday life and social issues that, that have changed so much. That's exactly what I was sort of alluding to, is, is the idea that, you know, the world has changed a lot socially oh, in, that, in that time. And... Put adoption in 1955 into context for me, if you could. You know, yeah, I think the main reason is behind it then. You've got to remember in those days uh, when a child was born outside marriage, it was illegitimate. Mm. The Latin term was filius nullius, and, and basically it meant that the child wasn't recognised by the law. That was passed down through our common law, mainly to protect a wealthy family. So if an errant son went off and had sex and got a young woman pregnant, there was no responsibility. Yeah, No one... Uh, and often the church or someone try and look after them. It was also seen as shameful to have a child outside marriage. And there was also the concern, who's going who's to pay to look after that child if it's born outside marriage? And so for the state, if you have adoption, it means that you've got guaranteed people to pay for, take on the financial burden. And also the assumption was that we will, it was called the king hit of family law. Basically, it meant that we, we totally the birth parents didn't exist anymore. Mm. They weren't recognised, nothing on the birth certificate. In fact, the, the records were hidden. And the adoptive parents, the child, as if it was born to them in lawful wedlock. In other no. words, it was a fiction that this child was born to them like any other child in lawful wedlock and, and its life would then be happy and would go on if it was left with the, with the, with the mother. She wouldn't have the financial means. She would struggle. And, and also she would feel ashamed because being a solo mother in those days, uh, marriage was the only 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 job, only thing in town. We didn't mm. recognise the same-sex relationships. We didn't recognise de facto relationships. So it had financial and also had other other uh, the purpose of, of giving him uh, a, a legitimacy 
legacy. And it was also at a time which, again, um, we look back, was assimilation. So the idea was that even though Maori was reasonably common for whangai, which was the Maori term for adopted child, where they would be placed with other members of the family who were childless, but they would always know each other. They didn't have a concept of illegitimacy in in Maori, but it was at a time where they wanted to um, assimilate and say, we know what's best and therefore assimilate Maori into our ways of of doing things. And we know now in history that's that's been a bad thing because we we try to take away their language, Maori language, and we try to take away their ways of dealing with their children. And and we we did all those things and Maori children were adopted into into Pākehā families and lost their whakapapa and all sorts of things. But but the, the driving intent was you'll now be legitimate, you're now part of a married family and that's yeah. the only family that really counts. So it was a it was a very simple idea but it, it has had quite serious consequences because uh, the obliteration, you know, it, it says you are deemed to be the legal parents and, and your birth parents are deemed not to be your parents for any purpose whatsoever. Gone. Mm. To look at this legislation through a 2022 lens is interesting. According to the law as written, Only married spouses can adopt, and you have to be at least 25 years old. There's no provision for de facto couples nor same-sex couples. Though in practice, this has changed over the years, as the definition of spouse has been interpreted by judges to include same-sex and de facto couples. If an adoption order is made for the child of a person considered mentally disordered, There's no requirement to actually notify that person. It was regarded as sufficient to serve notice to the administrator of their estate. Birth parents are given short shrift. As Mark Hennehan said, once a child's put up for adoption, their involvement is pretty much over. The law is heavily weighted in favour of the privacy of the biological parents. Their right to privacy, in essence, supersedes the adopted child's right to know about themselves and their family. While a new act passed in 1985 and driven by the efforts of Wellington man Keith Griffith did allow adopted children to request some information about their birth parents, Mark Hennehan says that's only in certain circumstances and records are often patchy. And that leaves people like Erica Newman's mother in a horrible position. They want to find out about themselves, but often they just can't. You spoke to the the writer and the broadcaster, Kiana Matata-Sipu, last year for her podcast, Nuku, and it was really interesting listening back to that, and particularly her introduction of you. I, I found it really impactful and very sad, actually. She said, When I first read an online bio for Dr. Erica Newman, it stated her whakapapa as Māori, and then in brackets, iwi unknown. It has to be one of the most powerful yet painful identifiers I have ever read. I'm guessing that also, you know, that goes back to your to your mother and the and the difficulty she had in, in finding stuff out about herself. And I guess that that sort of speaks to the the intergenerational nature of of an issue like this, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, how else can you identify? You know that your whakapapa is you've got whakapapa Maori there, but you can't tell people, you know, where you're from or um, name your marae or name your iwi or your hapu. So the only, and I actually got that, that iwi unknown is because the census forms say, you know, choose your ethnicity, Māori, okay, iwi, and then they've got a box that says iwi unknown. It's like, yep. And it's it's kind of heartbreaking every time I had to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> but um yeah, but it, it did, did sum up our identity and how we identified ourselves is that 
yes, we're Māori, no, we don't know where we're from or where we connect to. Well, what I mean, like, let's let's go into that a bit if you're comfortable with it. You know, that, that term iwi unknown. Mm. What what does it mean for your sense of self as a wahine Māori? What what does that that term kind of does that come loaded up with a bit of baggage? Um, yes, <laughs> um, definitely. It's it's the whole idea that you know that. We can't, you know, no matter how much we want to be able to participate within Te Ao Māori and where we want to participate and want to know who our, you know, what our marae is, what our iwi is, uh, our hapu, and be able to be part of an active member and and not being able to do that. And there's just a whole lot of things as well that come from that kind of iwi unknown as well. as like even learning Te Reo Māori, um, and it's, and I, I struggle with languages, so I struggle with te reo Māori, but um, you know, I think at some level there was always a barrier as well because I didn't know my dialect because I didn't know what that was. So, yeah. There's a few things. It's crucial for everyone, I think, in that sense, and and, and it's an interesting um, concept because I think that People just assume that children wouldn't wouldn't want to know. They'd be they'd be perfectly fine. But most adoptive, and there's no requirement to even tell a child that they've been adopted. So they might even not even know. I mean, they probably work it out after a while. But it's it's it, it seemed under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, every child has a right to know their identity. And you can't know your identity if you don't know your birth identity. And as I say, whakapapa is crucial. People introduce themselves through their whakapapa, and you don't know what it is. So Maori children got caught uh, between not knowing their whakapapa. They're often adopted into Pākehā families and they didn't feel comfortable in the Māori world and they didn't feel comfortable in the Pākehā world. So we put them in a really difficult, um, very, very difficult situation, really. You know, And I think it, it was done with the intention, well, at least they're going to be legitimate, but I think knowing your identity is probably more important. And in the Māori world, they just didn't recognise it. Yeah. In fact, the Māori Affairs Act said we don't recognise uh, illegitimacy. I mean, they were miles ahead. When we introduced the Status of Children Act in 1969 to say illegitimacy no, no longer exists, uh, Hannon, the Minister of Justice, said the Māori world and the Pacific world have had this for a long time. <laughs> we're just catching up. Some people see it as giving a child that sort of they, they want to be part of this family fully, you know, and I think that's important. But but to cut out the birth parents was just, it was they were cut out because they they were seen as the shameful ones. Yeah. This should never have happened, you know. It was a, it was a form of some wonderful books written by the woman. One woman said, you know, we we were punished because we we didn't use our sexuality for trading purposes in marriage. We we used it outside marriage, and yeah. therefore we're punished, and our child is ripped away from us brutally by society. It was some powerful work written yeah. by women in those days, and and. Uh, I've met many of them, and I think they they, they they thought of nothing else the rest of their life. I wonder what happened to that. It's been inside them for nine months. T- few days later, sign a form, gone. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just you, you don't forget that. No. We did a DNA test in two thousand and nineteen. Uh, we did it with my heritage. We just wanted to see what would come up. We found some connections, and we got a general idea that it was Napoli that we connected to, going by the strongest connections that were there to mum. But there wasn't really that a really strong connection there for us to be able to identify immediate family. So we decided last year, 2021, mum did a DNA test with Ancestry.com, and Ancestry actually holds a lot more more Māori DNA and we actually um, did get a really strong hit and it was a niece to mum on her Māori side 
So I made contact with her and we just sort of started up a bit of a conversation and started building a relationship and we were trying to work out how this worked and all the rest of it. And there was still, her mother had passed, but um, she still had um, an auntie alive. And so I made contact with her. And so I asked auntie if she would do a DNA test, which she did. And it did come back as she was mum's sister. So, um, yeah. So we went from knowing nothing and to um, knowing exactly who her birth mother and her birth father was. So... It's still kind of surreal, and I was talking to Mum today. I had lunch with her today, and you know, she said, you know, people ask her if she's really excited about this, and she's still, I think, at some level, she's still waiting for something to happen where it's all just a dream and not quite real. Yeah. So um, we're actually going to go and meet Mum's sister next year. Uh, she lives in Australia, so. We're going to um, have a big family trip over there and meet her and um, my cousin who lives over there as well. So, Wow. We're lucky. Yeah, but what, that's what I was going to say. Like, you, you, you are lucky. Like, if, if, yeah. you, if you hadn't taken those steps, maybe, maybe this passes you by as well, you know, and maybe your children have iwi unknown next to their names. And, and the further down the tree you go, the less information you get yeah. and, and the more difficult that journey of, of self-discovery becomes, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And we are lucky in the fact that um, my auntie and my cousin have been, have embraced us and welcomed us with open arms. Mm. Now, we haven't been back to Northland yet. We haven't made connections with other whānau, so I, I don't know how they're going to, you know, what their reaction is going to be, but, you know, and that becomes more negotiating for us to do in trying to form healthy relationships with them. I want to talk a little bit about whāngai, Whāngai is, is often characterised as sort of Māori adoption. It, it's not really that, though, is it? I mean, that's a very oversimplified <laughs> way of thinking about it. Can you just explain a bit about yeah. what Whāngai is? Yeah, so, yeah, a lot of people do like to use it as uh, it's the Māori version of adoption. Well, actually, <laughs> Māori didn't do adoption mm. before um, these European laws. So Whāngai itself is a kinship structure. It is part of the kinship structure. It was a normal practice where, for whatever reason, a child may not necessarily reside with their birth parents, but they would definitely reside with a family member. So whether it was their grandparents, um, because it was common practice for the eldest grandchild to live with the grandparents, so then they would actually... Um, be given the knowledge of whakapapa and things like that. So it's so different to adoption. The only similarity that is there is that it's not necessarily the birth parents raising the child, but it is always family. That child always knows their whakapapa. They know their identity. They're strong in their identity. And the idea is that their mana is enhanced, not reduced. What they've done in the reform, I think, is very good. They've, they're going to consult with Māori because it is, it is part of tikanga, and, and there are a number of choices. One, one is to say, do we have a, a whangai legislation? So it's dealt with the way Moana, the late Moana Jackson would say it. it's, it's a Māori concept, so it should be dealt with by Māori for Māori. So because there's a danger when uh, Māori concepts are introduced into the law, they get distorted and, and, and misused. It should be recognised by our Adoption Act. We yes. should recognise it as being legit, uh, as, as, as legal, but, but the process of how to do it. Uh, and in fact, the Adoption Act, uh, the reforms recommend, it was a big issue in 1988 when they had a big plug at reform. Uh, many Māori said adoption within the Māori world 
is not an individual thing, it's a collective thing, and whānau should be consulted and involved in that process. So there are proposals to say that uh, when, when there's a proposal to adopt that, that whānau should be able to be involved in that process, not just because at the moment it's just really the mother consents. Mm. Uh, if the father's not uh, living with the mother, he doesn't have any automatic rights. Uh, they want to have the, the father involved, the mother, and the wider family. So it's much more of a collective thing because for Māori, the, the collective is, is more important than, than one individual um, doing that. So they're trying to bring it back to that base. So that's recommended. But the whole whangai will be dealt with by Māori consultation, and I hope that's done well. I think the main thing that I would like to see, not, I, I mean, I, I don't know about... And, incorporating whāngai itself within the legislation, but I do think um, mātua whāngai or the the parents, the people who are are raising the children should be um, acknowledged and recognised as is the same status as parents, so to be able to have the same rights as a parent as to how what they do for the child as well as those financial assistance that, um, you know, parents and adoptive parents and foster parents get. Mm. Um, but, yeah, what it actually looks like in the end, it's like, mm, I don't know. And I will be really interested to hear what Māori think. And I think, you know, they, you know, iwi need to talk with their members as to what they would like to see, I think, and how, this, and how they would like it to, to be governed. It's one of those things we don't discuss openly, but it's, there's been a lot of adopted people in New Zealand when you think of the thousands that were adopted from the 50s onwards or earlier, you know. Mm. So we've kind of, um, yeah, I think because the numbers have dropped, people don't see it as a problem, but I think we've still got into country adoption issues. We've still got those sort of issues we have to deal with, you know. When, when, you know we, we've got to be clear what our policies are, and it's got to always be with the child being the first, in, first consideration. Public consultation on adoption law reform is currently being sought with feedback due by August the 7th. You can find a link to submit on the Justice Ministry website and we'll pop a link in the web version of this story. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. And thanks to Dr. Erica Newman and Professor Mark Hennehan. Matewa. <laughs>